0: And thank you all so much for coming to the National Library on what I'd like to describe as the first day of autumn. I know it's probably a little bit optimistic, but that's certainly how it feels today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Catherine Favell and I look after the Library's Community Outreach Branch and being involved in events like tonight is certainly one of the perks of my job. As we begin this evening, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, the traditional owners of this land... And I thank their elders, past and present, for looking after our land so we can have the pleasure of calling it home. Now, the library is very lucky to have a long friendship with tonight's special guest, Kate Gremble. We're custodian of a collection of Kate's personal papers, ranging from literary drafts and proofs to correspondence with her agent, publisher and professional colleagues. We hold audio recordings and photographs and copies of Kate's books in languages including English, French, Swedish, Slovenian and Hebrew. And that's before I actually got to the end of the list of holdings. There was a time in the not so distant past when Kate was living in Canberra and we could spot her regularly in our reading rooms and in bookplate too. And Kate, we've missed seeing you here. We've missed wondering what you might be researching and writing while you've been sitting at our long tables in the reading rooms and it's a great pleasure to welcome you back to us this evening. Tonight's event is presented in partnership with two of our other dear friends, the Australian National University and Text Publishing. And it gives me great pleasure to invite the ANU's Colin Steele to begin our evening. Colin.
1: Thanks, Catherine. And the ANU is also delighted to be holding a joint Meet the Author event with the National Library for Kate's book, The Case Against Fragrance. And I'd also like to thank Text Publishing and Jane Finnimore for facilitating tonight's event. Later on, Catherine will be uh, outlining a couple of national library events that are coming up. And I'd just like to mention our next one at the ANU, which is on March the 28th at University House with David Marr and Laura Tingle in conversation on David's new quarterly essay, Politics and Prejudice, examining the politics of populism in Australia and the rest of the world. To return to tonight's event, um, please ensure all mobile phones are turned off. There'll be an opportunity for questions later on after the conversation between Kate and Gia Metheral. Gia is the former literary editor of the Canberra Times when it had one of the best book pages, if not the best in Australia. Now its local book review content has ceased and its truncated book pages sadly come from outside Canberra. Catherine has mentioned a long relationship between Kate and the National Library. She is of course one of Australia's most celebrated writers. Her best-selling novel, The Secret River, received the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Miles Franklin Literary Award. The idea of perfection won the Orange Prize. In the context of tonight, Coco Chanel once said, a woman who who doesn't wear perfume has no future. (laughs) Kate Grenfell said in her youth she always associated perfume with elegance and beauty. But she now asks, what do we know about the power of perfume to make us sick? She was on a book tour promoting One Life, an acclaimed account of her mother, which is on sale with her other books tonight at the bookshop. On this tour, she was dogged by ill health and started wondering, what's fragrance? What's in it? Who tests it for safety? What does it do to people, and who regulates the industry? The more Kate investigated, the more her novelist's instinct to explore and question was piqued, and as she said, her inner scientist was unleashed. The case against fragrance is a result of her investigation, a work of nonfiction combining memoir with rigorous research. Jane Austen films could almost subtitle Kate's book, Scent and Sensitivity. (laughs) Interesting, William Dalrymple, the well-known brief author on India, had an article in the December-January issue of the Monthly entitled, Sense and Sensuality, in which he highlighted the loss of India's historical mastery of the science of perfume and bemoan the fact that Indian distillers are increasingly finding and designing chemical substitutes. The case against fragrance will certainly make us see and smell the world differently. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Kate Grenville and Gia Metherill in conversation.
2: Thank you, Colin. I think that's pretty hard to surpass the sense and sensibility. (laughs) 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 Um, Kate, as Colin alluded to, the the book is very much arose from your your personal experience. Um, It it goes back, it's not a recent affliction, it goes goes back away. Can you tell us the story of your relationship with fragrance? Yes, certainly. But
3: let me just apologise in advance for my voice. As you can hear, it's it's, it's fading rapidly, so I'm hoping that Gia will ask very long questions. Um, but I'll, uh, I'll do my best, so I'm sorry it's a bit croaky and faint. Um, yes, I've always known that I had a slight problem with fragrance. Actually, not always. When I was uh, in my 20s, having dates with boys, I used to, of course, pour perfume all over myself in an attempt to become desirable. They, of course, were pouring Old Spice over themselves in a similar <laughs> attempt... And I used to wonder what was wrong with me, that I didn't enjoy dates. After half an hour, I'd have this ripping headache and just want to go home and have a shower and go to bed. I thought, oh, I must be totally neurotic, you know. I thought I liked boys, but as soon as I go out on a date... I'd anyway, I gradually managed to piece two and two together. It was not boys that I didn't like. I liked boys quite a lot. It was, and it wasn't going out on dates. It was as simple as the perfume, the fragrance. So as the years went on, I used less and less. I started to eliminate it from other products as well as um, actual perfume. Uh, But about 10 years ago, I suppose, I noticed that it got much worse. And as I think uh, Colin or Catherine mentioned, when I was uh, on tour for my last book, which was only two years ago... um, you know, as a writer, you can be a recluse at home in, a con- in the controlled environment of your house, but once you step out in the world, you're exposed to what other people are doing. That's when I realised that it was a major problem. In fact, there was a night in Launceston, in a hotel that was very heavily fragranced, as many hotels are now, when uh, I had such a headache and the, the perfume from the, from the foyer was coming in through the crack around the door... So after the book business was finished, I went out in the streets and found a newsagent where I could buy packaging tape, nice and wide. And I sealed myself in for the night like a pharaoh. And I thought, I have just, you know, crossed some boundary into into mm, crazy mm. person territory. But I also Mm. thought, am I really that crazy? And that was the very night that I sat up and I had my laptop with me, googled fragrance headache. And that's when I realised that I was not alone. In fact, the figure is that a 35% of the population not a, get health effects of some kind from fragrance. 35% know that they do, either headaches or asthma or um, skin allergies or many other sorts of effects. And that's when I began to think, well, if it's that common and yet
2: nobody is talking about it, uh, maybe somebody should. Hmm. I suppose having the problem <coughs> is one thing, but... Um, actually, as a novelist turning scientist, is another. And I don't think your, your publisher was madly keen on the idea. Uh, so what, what impelled you then to, to, I assume, spend quite a lot of time and effort researching this? So there's some very hard data in here. Mm, there is, yes, I did some hard what, work. What did you Ye- hope would happen?
3: Look, my publisher was terrific. He's a marvellous man, Michael Hayward at Text Publishing. I, t- I told him that I planned to write a book about fragrance and he blanched never seen anybody blanch before, but he did. The blood left his face. Uh, And he said, Kate, for you to be writing a book about fragrance would be like Mozart giving up symphonies and taking up greyhound training. (laughs) (laughs) Which was very nice of him. I would not compare myself to Mozart. But that was how keen he was. But he's a fantastically loyal publisher. And moreover, since he's sort of read the book and heard me talk about it, uh, I like to feel that he's actually kind of come around. Um, It was a daunting task because the science reading... I decided very early on that the only research I would quote would be from um, uh, scholarly articles published in peer-reviewed journals. That is heavy-duty science, you know, multiple authors, little abstract that's usually fairly readable, long piece which is often very opaque to a non-scientist such as myself. I was very lucky to have a lot of help uh, with science literate friends who helped me through all that and I I began to see that actually the fact that I'm not a scientist is kind of an advantage because I know what we don't understand, what we non-scientists don't understand. So I began to see my job as like that of a translator. The science is out there but nobody's reading it except other scientists. So there's a place for someone who can take it and with help understand it and Re, uh, re-express it in a way that people like me can understand.
2: Mm. Um, it, it, it was more than daunting as well in an, in another sense, I think, because you, you did feel quite embarrassed about all of this and felt that you might be sort of regarded as a bit weird. So in a sense, you've outed yourself. Mm. But you have now... That's opened up doors in terms of meeting other people who... I imagine you hear all the time, you know, this has happened to me to to a greater or lesser extent.
3: That's absolutely right. It's been an interesting process for me. In fact, the whole book has been a (coughs) process and I suppose that's where being a novelist coming to this subject is also an advantage because I could see that a book has to have a, uh, if not an actual story, a sort of narrative shape so that you're not just reading a whole lot of facts. You're actually, Hmm. you know, going on a journey, I think is the cliché. And I have been able to do that through exploring my own questions as they ca- one question leads to another. Mm. Uh, how many of us are there? What is it in the bottle that's making us sick? Who is regulating it? So it became a kind of narrative. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the second part of your question. Oh, the shame. I, I wanted to talk about oh, the shame. It's a shame. Sorry, <laughs> yes. sorry, I'd
2: also forgotten it.
3: The shame <laughs> is an interesting thing because I suppose we all like to feel that we're kind of normal... I suppose that's where that shame comes from. But for a very long time, really until I started writing the book, I didn't tell anybody. I knew it myself, but I didn't tell anybody. And I now realise... Well, I began to realise, writing the book, that one of the... Because it's terribly difficult to say to somebody, I'm really sorry, but the way you smell is giving me a headache. (laughs) That's a seriously difficult conversation to have with your colleague or whatever. And I have a feeling that one of the one of the tasks of this book might be, or one of the things that it might be use, useful for, is uh, to be just casually left lying around <laughs> as a substitute for the impossibly awkward conversation. So I did feel... Um, I did feel shame, but because the more research I did, and particularly when I discovered how common this was, uh, I thought I actually have a responsibility in a way. As a person with a bit of a public profile, I thought I probably will get this book published, whereas perhaps another writer might not. And yeah. this is a book that should be, should be out there. Uh, so I felt, um, yeah, that it was, it was a kind of... Someone had to start the conversation, is what I was thinking, as 30 years ago somebody had to start the conversation about passive smoking...
2: Um, Kate, you talk about people putting stuff on themselves, but it's not just that, is it? I mean it's, in, in the book you say it's everywhere, and I was going to ask you to read a um, thing, but... Perhaps you
3: could read it. I was going to say,
2: given the state of your, your sore throat, I'm okay. if you don't mind listening to Thank me, you. I'll... So you say, fragrance is everywhere, unless you go out of your way to avoid it, you live in a permanent mist of, mist of scented air. Think about the morning routine for a typical woman. She wakes up from eight hours spent in sheets and pyjamas fragranced with detergent. She goes to the bathroom and uses a loose smelling of toilet cleaner. The toilet paper probably smells of flowers and there might be an air freshener in the bathroom too. She washes her hands with scented soap. She has a shower using fragrance soap, shampoo and conditioner. She dries herself with a towel radiant with the scent of laundry detergent and applies fragrance, deodorant and moisturiser. She puts on clothes. They smell of the same laundry detergent. She does her hair with fragrance product or hairspray. Each item in her makeup bag, foundation, powder, blusher, lipstick, adds more perfumes. She'll throw the empty packets into a bin with a liner that smells of lemons. To finish, she gives herself a good squirt of her favourite scent, She hasn't even had breakfast, and already she's been exposed to fragrance in something like 15 products, 16 after she's washed up her cereal bowl and scented detergent. And then she goes out into the world. Say she works in an office, she'll breathe in everyone else's choice of perfumes, colognes, deodorants, and laundry detergents on the bus. She'll breathe more secondhand scent all day at work. (coughs) The air might be freshened there as well with reed diffusers or wall-mounted squirter. If she goes shopping at lunchtime, she'll get another dose, second-hand fragrance from the other shoppers, plus the room fragrance that many shops now use and the smell of fragranced candles and soaps in the bed and bath shop and the gift shop and the florist. If she stops at a supermarket, she'll get a big hit of detergent smell in the laundry product aisle. If she takes a taxi, it'll probably have one of those fragrance diffusers. Even after she's gone home for the day, she'll still be breathing fragrance because each one of those sources of secondhand scent will have left a little residue in her hair, on her skin, and on her clothes. So it's absolutely ubiquitous, ubiquitous. as we That's probably a all now <laughs> recognise. Yeah. Yeah. What is in those smells?
3: Ah, well, the fragrance industry has a list on their website of roughly 4,000 chemicals uh, that, that are the palette, as they call it, from which fragrance manufacturers create their <coughs> particular smell. Um, but beyond that, we can't actually know because um, uh, what the manufacturers do is, is combine a little cocktail of up to 150 or 200 chemicals to make their particular smell and that is the subject of a trade secret. That's a commercial in confidence thing because that's, you know they've put money into putting it together in just that way and as a result... Those ingredients, that cocktail of anything up to a couple of hundred chemicals does not have to be declared on the label. So any fragranced product will have in unreadable tiny letters a whole lot of other chemicals, some of which are not too good either. But in there somewhere with the one word fragrance or parfum, Mm. now that's the legal uh, sort of coverall for that cocktail of completely unknown chemicals. The only way you can actually know what's in a scented product is to take it to a chemist who has a, an elaborate machine which can, uh, you know, identify all the things. So, uh, even if you knew which chemicals out of those 4,000 were upsetting you, it wouldn't help you because for any scented product, uh, you can't know what's in it. And, of course, many scented products don't have to declare anything on the label. For example, um, air fresheners and so on have completely unregulated amounts of all the fragrance chemicals and cleaning fluids and air fresheners and things like that don't have to declare anything on the label.
2: Why, why is that?
3: I think the theory... It's a good question. I think the theory is that it's not up against your skin. Certainly the fragrance industry's justification for air fresheners and reed diffusers and all those things, not listing ingredients, and having unrestricted c- amounts of the chemicals... <coughs> some of them are restricted but not for these products, uh, is that you don't actually rub air freshener on your skin. Well, of course, you do more than that. You're breathing it into your lungs. It is also falling on your skin, and many of the chemicals can go through the skin, but, you know, you're taking it through your lungs, and those delicate little bits in your lungs, they're specifically designed to let things into your bloodstream.
2: Is there a particularly common chemical that most of our, say, cosmetics, toiletries that sort of thing would use? Well,
3: there has been research from the University of Melbourne by Anne Steinemann, who took um, a basket of uh, 40 or 50 very commonly used products and she has listed the most commonly occurring of these chemicals. But, of course, that that list would vary depending on which chemicals are used. Mm. Uh, Certainly some are more common than others. But, as I say, it's not all that useful to those of us without um, mass spectrometry gas chromatography. I haven't quite got that right, but it's something like that machines.
2: You would think that those chemicals had been tested and were declared safe, but that's not so, is it? This was another
3: absolutely astonishing fact to me. I mean, we live in a world that many people disparagingly call the nanny state. Everything's regulated, you know, within an inch of its life. Uh, My sister-in-law grows, um, has chooks, the happiest, healthiest chooks in the world on her farm near Gundagai but she can't sell those eggs unless she gets a laborious paperwork and certificate from the egg board. Uh, Children's playgrounds are so boring, children can hardly want to play in them. And yet, when it comes to fragrance and these 4,000 chemicals, and we're going to get onto in a minute the fact that many of these chemicals are definitely bad for us, there's no question about that. Uh, The horrifying thing is they're really not efficiently regulated at all. The fragrance industry, as as it proudly says on its website, is a self-regulated industry. So, you know, I had this idea that if something was for sale, it meant that it had been tested by objective, you know, government people and had been declared safe. This is actually not the case at all.
2: Can you perhaps... Um Pick a couple of the chemicals that might be... I, I, you know, I m- imagine you wrote the book and not everything's stuck in your head, but are there a couple of chemicals that sort of leap out that that you would associate with having harmful effects? Um, well,
3: m- well, maybe I'll start somewhere else and say what kinds of symptoms they elicit. Um, now, many of these tests are done by the fragrance industry themselves, so it's not as if mad anti fragrance scientists are finding this. This is... The fragrance industry itself uh, takes its responsibility seriously as, as a self-regulating industry. I don't want to, you know, diss the fragrance industry. So they test a lot of their uh, ingredients, uh, mostly on animals, because it's astonishingly hard to get human volunteers to subject themselves to these tests. Now, the results show that many of these many of these common chemicals are skin allergens. That's like well-known, so they cause contact dermatitis um, and eczema, uh, both of which are on the increase, oddly enough, in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, Many of them are irritants, which means that they can trigger asthma in people susceptible to it. Uh, It's the irritants that probably give people like me a headache. Uh, It's probably also what makes some people sick to the stomach or their throat closes up or they cough and sneeze, so that's the irritants then a lot of these tests have also shown that many of these chemicals are carcinogens, and I've got a little chapter on that in the book. Many of them are also hormone disruptors. The body actually uh, is fooled into thinking that they are uh, the same hormones, particularly the sex hormones, that the body produces. Now, what the effect of all that is, particularly the carcinogens and the hormone uh, disruptors, all this is fairly new, so it's still being studied, uh, as you can imagine, by the scientists. But when I read all this, I thought, well, no wonder. No wonder so many of us have varying bad effects. The fragrance industry, as I say, does a lot of these tests, and it certainly doesn't deny that many of their ingredients are not good for the health. They have a number of uh, ingredients that are actually prohibited, although they're on the 4,000 list, and another lot that are restricted. So the fragrance industry is happy to say yes... These chemicals are not good for us. But their defence is to say, it's OK. We've done tests on animals and we have discovered a safe dose for these chemicals. And we make sure that in, in, in the products that go against your skin, you only get the safe dose. It doesn't apply to air fresheners, of course. You can put any amount in there. But there are a lot of problems with that. To extrapolate from uh, lab animals to the human body is a big leap. We are like animals in many ways, but not in others. For example, we can eat chocolate with no worse result than we get a bit fat and feel great pangs of guilt. But as many of you probably know, if you give chocolate to a cat or a dog, it may die. Mm. So, you know, you can't extrapolate from animals Mm. confidently. Mm. Uh, The other thing, of course, is that... um, So we can't know that the safe dose for an animal when extrapolated to a human, even with a safety margin is actually going to be safe for us. The other thing is that because we're getting the safe dose in 15 or 16 products before we've even had breakfast, what does that mean? Plus all the other exposures that we're getting during the day. So uh, even if there is, in fact, a safe dose for these chemicals, uh, we can't know what it is and we can't know whether we're on the right side of it.
2: Um, The the synthetic um, chemicals that are used are uh, as a result of the fact that they're cheaper, aren't they? Yes. To it's cheaper to synthesize a smell and, and mimic it in a mm. chemical way than to use. I think you you've got an extraordinary figure in the in the in the book about rose petals. You ah, need yes. you need I forget how many thousands of kilos to get just a very small amount of the natural mm. so so for example, a musk I think used to be from an animal. That's right. Mm. And is now, and that's a very widely used. Mm. Laundry detergent is full of yeah, artificial musks. Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty horrified by what you had to say about laundry detergent. It does seem to be one of the very big baddies in the story, doesn't it? I think it is because uh, laundry detergent is usually <coughs> uh,
3: centred with musks, which, as you say, you used to have to kill deer or civet cats or something to get it. So it was very expensive and animal rights people thought that was a bad thing when I think they were probably right. So post-Second World War, mostly, artificial musks were developed. Now these are these are chemicals that the planet has never seen before. They're not synthetic versions of natural chemicals, as some of the other fragrance ingredients are. They're brand new inventions, a bit like plastic and things like that. Um... And they're very effective in making laundry detergent smell like an ocean breeze or a pine forest or whatever your choice of the day is. (laughs) But they, unfortunately, they have two unfortunate unintended consequences. One is that they are virtually indestructible. From the laundries of the world, they go into the wastewater treatment plants of the world and come out the other end essentially unchanged. And what they're doing when they come out the other end has made people realise the other bad thing about these uh, so they, they bioaccumulate. That's so. If we eat um, <coughs> if we eat um, fish that have or virtually anything that's been in contact with these things, but you probably all know what bio. This is Canberra. You will all know what bioaccumulate <laughs> yes, means. Yes, we do. I think. <laughs> um, and it was the it was the aquatic life downstream from wastewater plants that first alerted to scientists to the fact that these things are doing something very weird, which is what I mentioned before. They are acting like hormone, uh, either hormone mimics or hormone blockers. And they were doing very strange things to the wildlife downstream from the wastewater plants. And that has made scientists start to research what they're doing to us. Now, this is very recent research because these chemicals have only been in wide use for really my lifetime. You know, Uh, it's that recent in fact, we, we, are the giant, we are the lab rats in a giant experiment, in yeah, a way. Yeah. But because we're exposed to those, because they're so ubiquitous, we're exposed to them all the time because we're up against fragranced fabric 24 hours a day one way or another, uh, they are indestructible, uh, they bioaccumulate. I mean, they're found in breast milk. This is all uncontroversial science. Um, so the only question is, what are they doing to us? If, for example, a, pr- a mother pregnant with a baby boy is getting a much bigger or a bigger dose of oestrogen in the form of these musks than her body would normally produce, what might that be doing to the child in her womb, particularly a boy child? So these are questions that are still being studied, but they are, are of huge concern, given that fragrance is an optional extra to us. Yes, life.
2: yes. So it's a modern-day problem. It's... it's um, I mean, would there... With the old perfumes, would you have, do you think you would have had the similar headaches in that, the concentration of the, the natural oils or whatever that's in them, in them?
3: Look, some people are sensitive to uh, natural oils, yeah. essential oils, because although essential oils are made from natural ingredients, for example, all those squillions of kilos of roses, I've yes. forgotten too, but it's a yes, gigantic yes, number yes, that you need yes. to produce a tiny drop of rose otto, um, it's true that they are made from natural ingredients but they are concentrated in such a way that nature did not intend us to smell them like that. Nature intended us to pick up a rose or at most half a dozen roses. On Valentine's Day, perhaps a dozen roses and smell them. It did not intend us to hove up our nose something that is the equivalent of, I don't know, thousands, 40,000 yes, yes, roses. Yes, yes. So that's why some people, although they're natural product, some people are still... Sensitive to them because, in a way, they're not very natural.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can't, for example, bear to have hyacinths or jonquils in the room. Uh-huh. I absolutely cannot stand the it's so have to take them out. It's a very strong smell. It's a very it? strong yeah. smell, and it's perfectly natural. Mm. Um, And would you differentiate between expensive perfumes and cheap Uh, ones then? Does it make any difference?
3: Thank you for that question, because many people say to me, oh, yes, cheap perfumes give you a headache, but my expensive one wouldn't. But like
2: cheap wine and expensive wine (laughs) or something. Yes, French
3: champagne couldn't possibly give you a headache.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Would that it were so. (laughs) Um,
3: Well, unfortunately, um, there's no way of knowing, because even the most expensive perfumes don't declare their ingredients. And, of course, you know, if you're a manufacturer and you've got something that's like a 1,000% cheaper to make virtually the same smell uh, and you don't have to clear the ingredients, would you use the expensive $300 for less than a teaspoon of rose oil? Probably Mm. not. Mm. So I think even the expensive ones, they may smell nicer than the toilet cleaner, but essentially they're made of the same things. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
2: (laughs) Now... I was really interested to read that in the the United States and Canada, for example, um, which I've never heard of, there are uh, organisations and workplaces that have fragrance-free policies Mm -hmm. uh, and we in Australia must be lagging way behind that because I don't think I've ever been aware of walking into anywhere that said, Mm. you know, this is a fragrance-free zone. were you, were you really surprised to, to discover that or did you know about it well before?
3: I had no idea. I was yeah. astonished. The reason why... Um, in Canada, it was, a, it was some progressive nurses in Halifax at, at a famous... Uh, <coughs> I've forgotten the name of the very famous hospital in Halifax. And the nurses, some of them were sensitive, but they also could see that some of their patients were suffering from the input of fragrance. So they made that hospital fragrance-free. This is a long time ago... They were very forward-thinking, those nurses. And Canada has since then been on the leading edge of saying, yes, let's stop pumping this stuff into the air without knowing what it's doing to people. Now, in America, it was a little bit different. In, I think, 2008, a woman uh, who was sensitive to fragrance and had asked her (coughs) colleagues to stop wearing fragrance and putting potpourri and uh, diffusers on their desks Um, Okay, so she she had had that problem. She had gone to management and said, look, please, would it be possible to ask people to, you know, Mm, cut down mm. on the smell? They said, oh, no, 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 it would be going against their constitutional rights to ask them to to refrain. So she soldiered on until one day she collapsed and had to be taken to hospital, and it was very clear that she could never go back to work. So um, she found a good lawyer and took her employers to court and won a very, very large payout Now, within (coughs) about a week, government offices all over America became fragrance-free, at least in theory. So, they had fragrance-free policies, fragrance-free or low scent signs up. Uh, Now, in Australia, it's interesting, a lot of places, I've talked to a lot of people who say, oh, yes, I'm in a choir, and we're all asked not to wear perfume. That's very common, because I think it gets in people's throats. Okay. Okay. and there are a few, and there is a woman who has taken her employer to court. Actually, she was a Canberra public servant, uh, but unfortunately, she couldn't afford a lawyer, so yes. she didn't win. But we have the framework in disability discrimination legislation, and also human rights. The Human Rights Commission recognises, impos- if you can't access premises because of the way it's f- they're fragranced, you have the right to, you know, your your human rights have been uh, uh, negated. So, in other words, we have the legislative framework here and I think it's only a matter of time before there's, a, before there's a case. There might even be a lawyer in this audience who thinks, ah, yes, yes, let me be the first.
2: So you think that that'll have to be the route through will be a, a case establishing the right of a person to a fragrance-free workplace, whatever.
3: I think it will have to be because if you look at the, sm- the second-hand smoking analogy, which is yes. a very close yes. one in many yes, ways, that's how that, yes. you know, an employee... I mean, the OH&S regulations often mention our fragrance. I've got a chapter about that too. So, um, you know, we have the right to breathe air that does not make us sick if the employer has the power to, to make that happen, and and they do.
2: Well, I, think I certainly think <coughs> that your book will be, um, you know... Uh, really raising awareness about the issue. I've, even though I was sensitive to a couple of things, nothing mm-hmm. like you, I, I had no really no awareness at all of what I was using in my home. And since then I've been going around sniffing the sheets in my laundry and <laughs> reading my bottles and being absolutely staggered by what's in them. And I have seen the perfume or whatever it uh-huh. is and some of the other chemicals that you you mentioned. So I, for mm-hmm. one, will be reassessing Mm. The way I run my household and my toiletries, etc. Well, the thing is, (coughs)
3: fragrance-free, as you no doubt know, are very easy to buy these days. The market has spoken and the market says we may not quite know why we don't want to saturate ourselves in fragrance, but we want to go fragrance-free. So you
2: can buy it at any supermarket now. Yeah, well, I'll certainly be be looking out for it now. What would you really like to see happen? Would you like, actually, for there to be some sort of uprising, or <laughs> <laughs> you in the lead, or what, what? 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 do you think needs to happen to, aside from a court case? To, I mean, it it seems that in our nanny state, there is a role for government to play if, if this is such a widespread health issue, and if it's an environmental issue as mm. well, yeah. uh, that that it's it's you know not just an in suffering for individual suffering and silence. It should be. Much greater um, um, concern at a policy level mm, mm. about this: uh, in the health department, I, I environmental department.
3: The judge who who awarded the woman in America the big payout said that uh, the problem with the fragrance was that it interfered with the major life activity of breathing, and it is as basic as that. Now, exactly what you do next, um, it would be, I think, a mixture of things, and certainly legislation. But that often happens. Happens after litigation. I think I used the word legislation before, and I actually meant litigation. Sorry, the brain is a bit addled by the virus. Um, I think a, a successful uh, a successful court case would do a, a great deal. But I think that I think all of that is kind of way beyond my area of expertise or knowledge. My aim in this book is to start the conversation and to make people like you. Mm. Just start to say, well, wow, we are using this stuff, we are saturated in this stuff all day, every day. Let's start to um, think about it. Yes, we may still choose to use some scented product, but let it be an informed choice, not just a sort of passive, oh, well, this is, this is the products that are there. Let's start the conversation to realise the effect that something that one person does will have a big effect, possibly, on the health of people around them. So it's I, the, the starting point is, is awareness, I mm. think. Mm.
2: Mm.
3: And I'm hoping that um, copies of this book will be left casually lying on desks all around yeah. Australia to, to make well the
2: happen. Well, I hope so too. And I'm, I, I have a suspicion that um, some of our audience may hope so too because I would think that given the, the, the figures that you've mentioned... Mm-hmm. Um, People in the audience might also have um, similar um, uh, similar, you know, um, impacts on their their
3: well-being. I wonder if we could ask for a show of hands. Those who are affected by... Oh, my goodness. Oh. That's more than 35%. Wow. That's a, lot a
2: lot of people. I
3: suppose you're self-selected because you've come to hear a thing about <laughs> the case against fragrance.
2: Well, but I am still. going to... I think, Kate, we will... Um, Open, open it up to the audience now. If, if you would like to have questions, I just would ask if you have got, you know, um, if you have had problem with sense and whatnot. Uh, please keep it brief because we <coughs> don't want a long, you know, life story about it. But you're welcome to state, you know, um, your experience. I think you were first over there.
3: Actually, this lady was first. But oh, this lady. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll go mm-hmm.
2: to a
4: second. Thank you. Um, Kate, I've actually had the experience of being sacked from a government department in Canberra... Oh, my goodness. ..when I very politely asked my boss if she could reduce the perfume. After I had passed out at work, smashed my face on a filing cabinet, which I have a permanent scar for, her response was to put her hands on her hips and say to me, well you will have to find another job because I'm not changing anything I'm doing. I'm the perfume girl. I wear a different perfume every day and we can't have you here because you won't be able to come to meetings. Wow. From a job that I adored. Yeah. But just as a second thing, I didn't know whether you would be aware of this, that the National Gallery of Australia at Ah. the moment has the Versailles exhibition on where they are pumping perfume into... The foyer. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Good point. You yeah. ha- that you can't get by. Yeah. Mm. Now as a, I, an enhancement to your unforgettable experience and <sighs>
5: yeah. look, when so I, I
4: could end up in hospital.
3: Absolutely, from waiting in line to yeah. see that show. Look, I actually wrote to the director. I read that in the monthly. I haven't been myself, but I read it in the monthly, and I immediately wrote to the director of the National Gallery. Very reasonable, reasoned mild-mannered letter, Hmm. just uh, putting out some of these facts. No answer.
2: No answer. How long ago is that?
3: Oh, um, well, when did that monthly? It would have been the January monthly, probably. So, you know, he's had plenty of time to reply.
2: So, well, over a month.
3: He won't. won't. Oh, great. They were willing to do that, and yet they want to keep it going. Yeah. But the more of us protest... Next time some fragrance person says, oh, we could enhance this exhibition with some fragrance, they will think twice about it. So that's what we've got to do. We've got to make the fuss, not be embarrassed.
6: Thank you for that. Thank you. I've been living with this sort of thing for 40 years Mm. and I really want to thank you for writing this book and going around and talking about it because there are two things for me right now. One of them is that... I'm fairly sure that my speaking about chemical sensitivities and perfumes and whatever has led many people that I encounter living in this town to decide I'm crazy. And I have to tell you, I'm awfully sick of it. So I'm sick of what what the environment does to me and I'm sick of what people will then do. And one of the things I wanted to tell you is that we've done some work in my allergy group for several years to get the... ACT Health to take this seriously. And about four years ago they put in a policy for the, at the hospital on managing people with chemical sensitivities Fantastic. and it was a bloody good policy. It came out of the work that had been done by Queensland, South Australian and Victorian sta- um, s- support groups. Yep. For uh, In, uh, in s- oct- August last <coughs> year they agreed to revise it in the hope that it would get better and... Uh, the draft was much worse Mm -hmm. and five months later we're still waiting to see what they say. So it's possible that in fact the counter forces have watered it down substantially or maybe I'll get a pleasant surprise. Mm -hmm. But people in this room need to know that you can actually, at least today or last week before they change the policy, the policy's been released but not to us, which is interesting. Not to the community. it will be You could have gone a month ago to the hospital and said, look, I need you to make sure that my environment is Mm -hmm. fragrance-free. And (laughs) hardly any staff know much about it, but it was possible, and I hope it's going to go on being possible. Well, thank you.
3: Yes, we all just... uh, Thank you for that. We all just have to keep pushing back. (sighs) Oh. Sorry, I think
2: you were quite early on, weren't you?
3: And you've done a good job, obviously. You've done an excellent job, so thank you.
2: If everyone could keep it brief, because I think there's a lot of questions in this room. Mm. <laughs> my name is Heidi. I just wanted to mention that um, some 13 years ago, I went through chemotherapy, and the thing we were told as part of our care was not to use perfumes. ha huh. And my husband initially didn't understand that it would be a good idea for him not to use the male equivalent. And as soon as he put it on, I just was, I just, I had a sheer
6: reaction to it. And after that, he stopped. I noticed just a couple of weeks ago, he's gone
2: back to having the odd puff again. And I've said to him again, I still, I still don't like having um, any scent or male, (coughs) whatever you call it, around the place, because it does affect people. And a lot of people may not realise what the irritation is Mm. because it's so common to be amongst others who are wearing it.
3: Thank you very much for that.
6: I'm just wondering if the fragrance lobby has approached you at all, given given it's so pervasive, whether whether you've been contacted at all. Yes. Uh,
3: Look, the answer is not yet. And... If and when they do, I will consider that I have succeeded. <laughs> if I'm big enough to be a target, I've made a difference.
2: <laughs> There's a question down the front row here.
5: Um, thank you. Uh, like the lady up the back chemotherapy developed uh, chemical sensitivity, particularly to a certain very expensive brand of perfume, (laughs) (laughs) but it wasn't just perfumes. Sorry, can you hold the microphone a bit? It wasn't just perfumes, it was other um, smells, and particularly I narrowed it down to the fixatives, Ah. as well as Ah. the fragrance. Yeah. Two areas I find the most problematic are sports um, gyms and indoor, indoor pools. But I always go up and say, look, I've been through cancer. Um, this thing, uh, these fragrances, these smells affect me. Will you please ask the people not to wear them? And usually they comply because you use the word cancer.
3: That's actually a really good, uh, yes. Uh, I wouldn't want anybody to tell lies, but actually it sounds like a very effective way of cutting through the resistance the, oh, this is just a crazy person yeah. saying, a seri- you know, serious illness. Mm-hmm, thanks for sharing that. That could be could be useful.
0: Okay, we've got a gentleman over on the oh, far left. As
7: I was listening to your discussion of fragrance and chemicals, I saw a
3: parallel with the ubiquitous nature of sugar. Uh-huh. Uh, at the moment, of course, we're now trying to impose a tax on sugar. <coughs> Should we in spite of what
1: Pauline Hanson says, that we're responsible for our own actions. uh, Should we try to move in this direction?
3: That seems like a a fair way down the track, but that would be great. I don't know what the tax is actually on imported uh, fragrance ingredients at the moment, but maybe it's not low enough, or maybe it's not high enough. Yeah, good
5: idea.
0: Mm. Right up the back.
8: Yeah, this is just um, a comment following up on the person who mentioned fixatives. Mm -hmm. Um, I I know I'm close to someone who has a pretty violent reaction, as in throat closing over, um, to to aromatic hydrocarbons. And so amongst that 4,000 list of of, um, chemicals that are being used, he would probably be allergic to... Uh, some of them and not to others. Mm. And we find sometimes that even fragrance-free uh, situations can can trigger this, or, and it's often spores or fungus as well, which has come Like an almost unable-to-be-smelt smell, if mm. you like. But mm-hmm. so the fixative business is... And some fragrances that you think would be a problem aren't, and it seems to be this... What they're attached to or what their disperser is. Mm. Just wondered whether you've... Um, been able to address that in what you've written.
3: Look I haven't. I opened up a can of worms in a way once I started doing the research because it led me into um, the plasticizers in plastics, uh, the hormone disruptors in pesticides. There's a whole Pandora's box there of which those other fragrance ingredients I do mention phthalates and the UV blockers both of which present problems also. I had to stop somewhere but I think we just don't need such elaborate products. I think that's probably the bottom line. We can go back to much simpler products, you know, soap rather than. Uh,
2: mm, I think, and probably the other thing is um, the antibiotic mm, yes. washes and things. I mean, it's a complete nonsense, and well, and now they're ubiquitous as well, and creating, of course, resistance. Absolutely. Um, but being why banned. we need Why we need to live in such a fragranced mm-hmm. world? a question I think we should probably yes. all ask ourselves. I mean, it's not as if we're living with open sewers or <laughs> in, in the olden days and all that sort of thing. That's it's, right. Uh, you know, it's it's quite extreme, isn't it? And they it's even in the, you talk a lot actually in the book. Sorry to interrupt you, Kate, mm-hmm. about the baby oh. fragrances. Oh, that's just You know, in their nappies, in their wipes,
3: in yeah. their and their skin is so absorbent. Their bodies are not developed yet; they can't deal with this stuff. Uh, for babies. Particularly, it just horrifies me. It
2: is horrifying. I mean, the, the natural smell of a baby is mm. is beautiful, unless
3: they're chucking or pooping.
2: <laughs> yeah, but there's soap <laughs> can wash to clean that <laughs> exactly. up. I mean, you know, you don't need exactly. a, a daily going around and scented nappies and that yep. sort of thing. I mean, I quite agree. Mm-hmm. Sorry, now I interrupted the question. Sorry, Catherine.
0: We have another question over on the left.
7: Oh, just uh, I was just reminded uh, in listening to your talk about. Uh, reading, I'm not an expert in this area, but in the area of psychoneuroimmunology, some of the early research that was done very specifically (coughs) was focused on the olfactory nerves and their connections in the brain and the definite connections in terms of immune response, Mm -hmm. which uh, you can look at sometime. Uh But I was also reminded of what was it like before there was any perfume industry, and there's some wonderful early... I don't know if you've looked at these as part of an introduction, but uh, in... Accounts from medieval times, uh, middle ages of what was valued for scent was when people gathered, youth gathered especially, was clothing that had been worn over and over and over again and stank just as much as possible of sweat, even urine Uh and all sorts of other things. And there were court cases of, uh, for example, one was where a young woman had cut a piece of clothing, a a little fragment of cloth out of a man's... Attire at a party, and she was charged by the family because, because of the smell. <laughs> so the the natural odors enhanced was uh, what was valued. Right. Yes.
3: Yes. The whole business about the olfactory, it's uh, it, it, it's it's not something I went into in huge detail, but it is fascinating because it reminds us that we are still animals, uh, and at, at that level, quite primitive ones. Uh, you know, mothers and babies can recognise each other by smell. Human mothers and babies, just like sheep and, and, and other animals. Uh, we can pick up uh, when a man's um, immune system is going to make... Uh, uh, if we have a baby with him, that child will have a stronger immune system. We can actually smell that at an unconscious level. We, we don't respect our olfactory system as much as we should. It's a very powerful thing.
2: Yeah. Any any other hands going up? Oh, and that's right there again.
0: Um, Hang on, we'll just bring a microphone to you because we're recording. Thank you. Uh,
5: When I was working for the science
0: program, Quantum... uh, Uh, Mm. Just hold it closer to your... When I was working... That's it, Mm. yeah. sweet spot?
5: (laughs) Yeah. When I was working for the science program, Quantum, we did a study, um, a, a program on early memory and how the process of actual memory gets kick-started and what it is, it's a smell. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was habituate some poor newborns to the smell of a fresh um, lemon Mm -hmm. as opposed to the mother. But apparently they need the smell to kick-start the whole neurological process of memory. Yes,
3: there's a lot of studies about infant-parent bonding uh, through smell and it does make you wonder... Uh, in fact, at one of the Canberra hospitals, I, I had a young friend who had a, a baby there some time ago, and she said to me, the nurses said to, to us, stop using fragrance fr- products on either side of the birth for some time because, as the nurses put it, Bub needs to learn the smell of mum and dad. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine how, how, what a basic sense of reassurance that must be. Well, if that basic smell is clouded and, and completely masked by synthetic smells, what happens to that sense of reassurance?
0: You know, you've reminded me of um, my little baby when he was a little baby he developed a habit of sniffing me as he fell asleep mm. at night. He'd just put his nose up on my cheek and go... <laughs> <laughs> and he kept doing it till he was about <coughs> seven years old. And I thought it was quite bizarre, but now, after reading Kate's book, I understand what was going on there. <laughs> Fortunately, he stopped now, which is really... <laughs> Do we have any more questions? We've probably got time for one more question before we move the conversation upstairs. Does anyone want to be lucky last, or shall we take our fragrances up the stairs? There's a lady in the second row here. We'll just get a microphone to you.
4: Uh, Kate, I used to live in Oxford, where there was a wonderful uh, herbalist called Cold Peppers. and one of the things that they they uh, produced were uh, uh, sleepy pillows with uh, uh filled with with what they called natural natural you know uh, things like uh, lavender and, mm-hmm. uh, and and thyme and other things mm-hmm. and the whole idea was that uh, that they they uh, uh, encouraged sleep now i 'm just wondering i 'm sure that culpepper's stuff was was natural, and those things like lavender and time, the scent goes on and on. Uh, uh, can I just be clear that we're not talking here about those natural, naturally occurring mm. things that, in fact, you know, do help us?
3: Yes, although Gia has just said that she can't bear to be in the room with hyacinths and other strong-smelling things. So it is a spectrum, and there are people who, even with an absolutely 100% natural flower in a, in a pot, are going to be sensitive... But yes, there's some fairly good, fairly good science about uh, lavender and so on in its natural state, like as the plant, as opposed to the thousand times distilled and mm. concentrated form. Mm. But you know, uh, your concentration proof that the,
2: that
3: even the natural yeah, ones. But that's
2: easy for me to avoid. <laughs> you it's know, a I very just avoid those. It's, I, I don't have the problem that you have. Mm. Uh, so, yeah.
3: the natural plant. I mean, we evolved alongside plants. Uh, uh, our our bodies actually need a lot of things obviously that plants give us Uh, but we have because we're such clever animals we have done things to those natural things the other thing is that these days uh, there would be nothing stopping a manufacturer of a pillow like that just enhancing the effect of the natural lavender by popping in a little bit of extra synthetic lavender as well they won't be obliged to declare it on the label. In fact, I'm starting to think that florists actually spray flowers. Does this sound completely crazy? Uh, Because they've bred, for example, roses to be thornless, when you breed for one characteristic, you often lose another. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling that the roses might have lost a bit of their natural smell and you go into a florist shop and it's... Well, I used not to get a headache from roses, and I, I sometimes do, let's put it that way.
0: It's really interesting. Well, thank you both very much for an incredible evening's discussion. I, If you haven't read the book, I have to give you a warning that when you do read it, you will spend the whole time you're reading it doing an inventory of every product in your home. <laughs> you may find yourself standing for hours in the supermarket looking for fragrance-free deodorant and shampoo until you, you find it. It will um, certainly change the way you think about perfume, fragrance, all of those little hidden smells that permeate our lives. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't tell you the book was for sale upstairs at a 10% discount tonight, so if you haven't read it yet, please grab a copy. Kate has also agreed to sign copies for us tonight, and if you're feeling a little bit sensitive about perhaps the perfume that you're emitting this evening, you don't want to get too close to Kate, please let us know. Um, We can help pass books between her, and (laughs) you won't catch her bug, she won't smell you. So, uh, just let us know how we can help in any way. Thank you very much for coming tonight, and thank Kate and Gia. Thank you, Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you, Kate. See you upstairs.